We're in Genesis, the end of, oh, the start of Genesis 2, looking at the seventh day. All right, we're looking at verses 1 to 3. Uh, it may help to have your Bible handy because uh, we're not going to stay in Genesis 1 to 3. We're going to look at the Sabbath rest throughout the whole of Scripture, uh, and that's how we're going to unpack it. I'll explain that in a bit. But let me read Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and then we'll have a moment to compose ourselves and then we'll pray. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father, as we have just read of your rest, the God who is never weary, the God who never runs out of energy or has a limit on his power, Lord, you rested. Lord, you rested for many reasons, but for us to be, uh, for, for you to be an example for us. Lord, as we come to your word, as we try to look through a broad history of your people, from Israel to your church today, to your everlasting rest for the saints, Lord, would you give us wisdom and understanding? Would you expand our minds to grasp this beautiful gift of your grace? Lord, would legalism not come into this? Lord, please drive out our legalistic routine faith. And Lord, would we see this as a gift, a benefit, a gift of your grace to your church, to your people, that is a foretaste of where we will be forever, resting, resting in Jesus. Lord, let your word be seen and held up high. Keep us close to your word as we work and rest. May your name be glorified above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. It gives me great joy to hear the babies uh, making happy sounds or, or sad sounds as well. But I just think it's always worth pausing and reflecting on the children that we have and it is never a burden to hear their cry or their laughter or whatever it is they come out with. Uh, it's a real joy. They're part of our family. They're part of the church uh, and it's great to be able to have so many young, young babies in the church. Well, we're at the end of uh, creation well, creation sort of finished in, in day six. 
And now we start chapter 2 looking at rest or God resting after his work. It made me think about philosophers, those that write about the philosophy of life. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent time reading some of these guys, but I'm sure they do it on purpose to write in riddles. I'm sure I have to like reread it 10 times to just grasp this simple truth of life's about happiness. And it's like, you could have said it, life's about happiness. But instead, we'll write a whole book. Philosophers of life can be quite confusing, but it is a helpful study to know what people believe in our world. To love our neighbors well, it's helpful to know what truth they live by or what their understanding of life and existence is. What are their, what's motivating them? What's their goal? What's their purpose? What's their aim? But we may come to the conclusion, as I've found, that many people believe things, but the way they act or live out is not what they believe. Maybe some Christians believe that they are Christian and believe in God, but their lifestyle is not really reflecting it. And all we need to see is repentance and humility as a Christian. And, and we would see that, yeah, okay, they, they do believe what they're saying. The other person that I was thinking of is like an atheist. There was another name that I read in, in a philosophy book, but I can't say it. Uh, but it was uh, this idea that life is meaningless. Life has no purpose. Life has no goal or value. Now, if a person actually believed that, what would their life look like? It would be incredibly selfish, right? Their life would be selfish. But then if you go to the absolute extreme that life has no value or meaning or purpose at all, why do anything? Why work? Why ever have a relationship with anyone? Not just an intimate relationship, but why have friendships? I think sometimes what we'll see is as we talk to people, what they believe doesn't always come out in how they act. If we did a survey of Australia, I think what we would come down to is that most Australians would believe in some sort of hedonism, the belief that life is about pursuing pleasure and happiness. Uh, and they get this through the supply of uh, spending money on comfort. I don't know if you've ever thought about history, but we spend a lot of money on comfort today. Australia alone spends $25 billion. That was from a quick Google search, which I'm sure is exactly accurate to the cent. $25 billion on comfort. It was a legit site because they actually had all the breakdowns of where that money would go. Chocolate was third on the list. Chocolate. That's crazy. I was surprised by that. Uh, but we see the Australian understanding of life. And I don't know, I haven't been out much outside the country, but Australians love comfort. They love to work for the public holiday, right? The land of public holidays. We love a good public holiday. When I was working as an electrician, I would wait for the public holiday. I knew where they all were, every single one of them, so that we could have some time off work to pursue our pleasures, to take in comfort, to have that rest. I remember working with a bloke, we called him Eeyore because he was like the donkey of Winnie the Pooh. He was a bit depressed. Um, he, he was cool with it, so it was all right. Uh, he was always bummed out, moping around at work, didn't ever really want to be there. He hated his wife and children, and he would talk about it all the time. This was a miserable bloke, but when quarter to three came and we were about to pack up, he moved quicker than anyone, packed up everything, jumped in his car, shoot off home. We're left standing there, me and the other guys at work, going, where's he going? He doesn't like his wife. 
He doesn't like his children. Like, what's he so keen to get home for? Well, after this happening for oh, ages, I decided to ask him what he was going to do. And he said, I get home, open a beer, and sit on the couch. And that's what he was chasing. Every afternoon to go and pursue his definition of comfort. To find some sort of pleasure in this life of sitting on the couch and resting. I think when we look at Australian culture, what, they, what we are pursuing most of all is pleasure, comfort, and ultimately rest. Well, I don't think we'd ever define it as rest. I don't know if people would say, all I want is rest. But what we see, even just in the makeup of life, if we don't sleep, rest is a major part of our life, right? If we don't sleep, we become unproductive, exhausted. If we don't take days off, we will be burnt out. And eventually our body deteriorates that we probably can't even do the job we did when we were in our 20s. The whole of life seems to be pointing to rest, to finding comfort and pleasure in rest, to taking time out, to finally being done with things. And of course, as a Christian, we know that this comes from the creation order. We introduced last week that there is a cultural mandate And that's what the world is saying, how we should live and act. But before the culture influenced anything, there was a creation mandate. And over the next few weeks, as we unpack Genesis 2, we'll see that God created things in order, with a purpose. And from the beginning, there there was a purpose behind all things that were created, and culture has not changed that. Even in God's design of his six days creation and his seventh day rest, He was instilling something significant in the creation mandate. So as we unpack, we're going to unpack four types of rest or four different periods of rest. The rest of God. Why did God rest? Israel's rest up to Christ. Christ's rest when he came to earth and what he says about it. And the saints' everlasting rest. We're going to try and do a broad sweep of the Bible. Hope it's not too much. We're going to look at a few different passages. But let's start in verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So we see that there's this summary statement. All of the things are, all of the things are finished and all the host of them, really everything that belongs on the earth. So God has put animals on the earth. He has put people on the earth. Now everything is finished. Everything's wrapped up and God has completed what he set out to do, create the heavens and the earth and fill them. And that's how verse 1 starts in chapter 2. And then in verse 2, he says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh from all his work that he had done. Now, firstly, we see this number seven come up a lot in Scripture. Seven in the Jewish Bible or our, even our Bible throughout the whole of it is seven is the number for completion. Now, people get all freaked out about 666, the number of the beast. The only reason that is 666 is because it's not seven. It's not complete. There's nothing spiritual, it's like amazing about 666. What is amazing is the number seven. It's the number of completion. So when you read it in Revelation, the number of the beast is 666. It's saying he's incomplete. He's not finished. He's not God. 
So we see this number seven come up, and there is a completion in the number seven that God has ordered in his creation. And we see because he creates in six days, he finishes on the seventh, and he finishes with rest. Rest is a major part of completion, of fullness. Rest is a major part of the end of our day. Rest is a major part of the end of our week. Rest is a major part of the end of our uh, work year. Maybe we have a holiday. And rest is the major part of our life's existence. We all die. And people say, rest in peace. Or the Bible says, the saints will have an everlasting rest. So we're seeing right here from the beginning of, uh, from the end of creation, that God has had an order and that he will complete it and have a fullness of finishing the seven days. They've actually tried to change the days of the week in places, communist countries. It hasn't worked. To change it to a 10-day week, different number of days. It just does not work. For some reason, seven is the complete number for work and rest. And we see that God finishes creation and rests from all his work. Isn't this strange? God, the God that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, who speaks and things take place. He said, let there be light, and it was so. That phrase, those two phrases we looked at, that God is this God who speaks an infinite amount of power, has no limits upon him, and now he is resting. We can't say that God gets tired and weary. The Bible clearly tells us that he doesn't get tired and weary. So what is the meaning of God's rest? Rest. God's rest is for his image bearers, first and foremost. So in creation, God created us in his image and likeness. We looked at it last week. We are to bear his image across the world. We are, have, we are to have dominion. The image of God is to have dominion across the world. And we talked about how that would look through either discipling children or the evangelization of the nations in taking God's name. Now we see that it's an image that God has put across. If God rests, and to bear his image means we need to rest. So God was being quite gracious in resting so that he demonstrated for his image bearers that you aren't infinite. You aren't like me. You aren't going to last forever and ever without me. So you... Oh, man, need to rest. But there's more to it. That's not only the only reason. He also comes to dwell in his creation. So we are pointed to the image of the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle has been built in Exodus, and they carry the tabernacle around with them. And when it's finished being built, the cloud of God or the, the Spirit of God comes and dwells within the Holy of Holies. So in God resting, he's actually saying, I'm claiming this as my own. This garden of Eden, this creation that I have made is my place, my home, my, uh, and I, I rule over it. The third thing we see, which is really important to look at, is that just before he rests, he said it was very good. God in his resting is acknowledging that it's very good to be enjoyed. Now, for years, I think there has been a misplace of enjoyment in the church, that we aren't allowed to enjoy things, that there's going to be a strictness across our desires. But God is all about joy. He's all about desire. He's all about delighting in things, things he's created. 
He created us with five senses to enjoy things. And he himself enjoyed his creation. He saw it was very good, which means splendid or beautiful, really splendid, really beautiful, working in the correct order. So when he rests from his work, he's saying, we as image bearers of him should rest to bear his image. We should rest and enjoy the work we have done. But we need to enjoy it in the right motivation. Not enjoy it for what it is, but enjoy it for the sake of God, which we'll see as we look at how the Israels abused the Sabbath. When we rest, we are to rest in a way that says God has drawn, God has given me this beautiful uh, creation of work. He's given me the body that can labor, and I can now sit back and enjoy the works of my hands. I can sit back and enjoy God for, for him giving me this body, for him giving me this work, for him giving me this creation. So he demonstrates for his image bearers what it looks like to rest and enjoy what he has done. In verse 3, he says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, it's interesting that he blesses a day. We don't often see God bless things that are not, don't have the breath of life. It's actually mostly that he blesses people. And in Genesis 6, we saw him bless animals to be fruitful and multiply. But here, we see God bless a day of the week. And the only day he blesses is the seventh day. Now, we've unpacked blessing before to understand what it means to be drawn near and satisfied in God. So what we see about the blessing of the, uh, the Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the, the day of rest, is a day there to be re-energized, refocused, encouraged, to be reminded of who we are in God and to be drawn near to him. The day of rest being blessed is there for us to go, uh, I need more energy, I need more uh, enthusiasm, I need more passion so that I'm taken to be with him in my mind and in my heart. Matthew Henry speaks of the, the daily routines of a Christian, uh, of, of a person, really, life, but mainly a Christian. He says, when we have finished a day's work and are entering upon the rest of the night, we should commune with our own hearts about all that we have, do, have been doing that day. So like, likewise, when we have finished a week's work and are entering upon the Sabbath rest, we should thus prepare to meet our God. And when we are finishing our life's work and are entering upon our rest in the grave, that is a time to bring to remembrance that we may die repenting and so take leave of it. He gives this snapshot of this repetitive resting in our life after the day's work, after the week's work, after the life's work. And after the day's work, we ponder in our heart what we have been doing. After the week's work, we come and meet God and be refreshed by him. And after a life of work, we rest going to the grave, knowing that we can be repenting and be taken to the Lord. Beautiful picture of the Christian life, this pursuit of rest, resting in the Lord. So I think what we see in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, is rest is a major part of the human life. In many ways, it's the goal of the Christian. And I wouldn't just say the Christian, it's actually the goal of many non-Christians. We talked about the Australian culture, aiming for rest. How many people talk about retirement? When I get to retirement, 
only to get to retirement and not know what to do with their time. A major part of our rest, a major part of our life is to find this rest in the Lord. We are wandering about weary. We are wandering about as weak vessels and we are looking to rest in the Lord. Now we need to understand what went wrong in the rest. So Genesis 1 to 6, Adam and Eve would have worked six days. They would have seen a fruitfulness in their harbour. Harbour? I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Labour? Harbour. A fruitfulness in the Newcastle Harbour. I'm sure that's where Adam and Eve were. Uh, Anyway, they would have seen a fruitfulness in their labour and they would have rested. They could have sat back and enjoyed the crops and all the things that took place. I just think of Adam naming the animals and at the end of that week's work, maybe it took a week, maybe it was a month's worth of work, we don't really know. And then he rested. He must have just sat back and delighted in all that God had shown him. But then sin enters in the world and work becomes hard. We have this phrase, by the sweat of your brow, you'll work the land and thorns and thistles will grow from it. So work became tough, laborious, and work became so tough that I think resting became harder because there was always something more to do. With thorns and thistles now growing up and the sweat of your brow, the energy levels would be depleted over and over again. So there was always more you could be doing and rest became something that maybe was more optional than necessary. And we see that in the Israelites. So the next time we actually hear about the Sabbath rest is in Exodus when the law is given to the Israelites. We know the Israelites have been brought out of Egypt by Moses. They're in the wilderness. Moses is receiving the law from God. They sin greatly and are told they will not enter into their rest, the promised land, because of their sin They'll wander in the wilderness until that generation has died and then they will go in. And they're always looking forward to this ultimate rest of the promised land. So God gives them this sign in verse, uh, Exodus 31, 12 to 13, and then verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, above all, you should keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctifies you. And verse 16, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. So we've got Moses giving forth this law from God, and the law is a reminder to keep the Sabbath. The law is to keep the Sabbath as a reminder of the covenant that God has made between Israel and Israel and himself. So what he's promises, the covenant that he has made with them is that they will prosper. It's the same covenant that he made with Abraham and then affirmed with Isaac and Jacob. And they've been in slavery for 400 years. So they must be thinking, wow, this, this promise is really dwindling, but God reaffirms the promise through Moses and says, I will bring you to an everlasting rest. And the image was the promised land. We will go to the promised land and we will find rest. But before we get to the promised land, while you're in the wilderness, you can experience a foretaste, a shadow of this rest. 
by practicing it on one day of the week, as God did. So the Sabbath becomes a sign and a reminder that we ought to rest because one day we will ultimately rest. This was the sign for the Israelites. They will one day ultimately rest, and they were waiting for the promised land. So we see that it's a beautiful gift of God's grace that they were able to wander throughout the wilderness from day to day in the heat of the sun. They were supplied food from the heavens and daily would go out and collect it and only enough for the day. But on the Friday, they could collect more for the two days because the food would not come on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, they would rest anticipating, waiting for the day when they would enter into the promised land. But God gave them other signs as well, and they all have to do with the number seven. He gave them six other festivals throughout the year that they would have that would recall this everlasting rest that they were waiting for. He gave them the year of Jubilee, the small year of Jubilee, which is every seven years where they would be free of debt and the slaves would be sent free. And then the ultimate Jubilee, Seven times seven, 49 years. In the 50th year, they would have an ultimate jubilee where everyone would be set free from their debts. Everyone would be, uh, the land would be uh, put on hold for a year so they'd have to store up for that year in advance. Incredible that God gave Israel all these signs to ponder, wait, long for, enjoy, and experience experience just a little taste of what this rest would be like. Now, of course, the Israelites make it to the promised land. They finally get to their rest, and they turn from God. They turn from God, and it is not rest. It is hostile. They don't listen to God. They disobey him rather than driving out the inhabitants of the land. They choose to keep them there, and they are persuaded to follow after other gods. So rather than having ultimate rest that God ordained for them, They have troubles and chaos and dysfunction. And this goes on throughout the whole of the judges, the whole of the kings, but God sends prophets. And the prophets speak to Israel of a new rest. And this rest is going to come in the form of another covenant and in the form of another Adam. We know him as Jesus. Before we get to Jesus... We want to look at Isaiah, one of the prophets, because this verse on the Sabbath can be taken out of context and we can use it to beat down Christians with, which is not what it's for. Isaiah 58, 13. So we've gone a long way throughout the Israelite history. They're living in the promised land, but the promised land isn't their ultimate rest. They've been under turmoil of their own sin, their own disobedience. Kings have led them astray into disobedience. They haven't remembered the Sabbath. In fact, they use the Sabbath for falsehood. And and Isaiah 58, 13 says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on the holy day, and call the Sabbath the delight and a holy day of the Lord Lord honourable, if you honour it, not not going, going your own ways or seeking your own pleasures or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, our father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You can see how this has become a beating stick to put Christians in submission, right? Not allowed to talk idly on the Sabbath. 
Not allowed to do anything that you have pleasure in on the Sabbath. But we've got to be understanding of the culture. We've got to understand what's going on in the context. And it says that the day is meant to be honorable to the Lord. Our focus is for the Lord. So what we actually see here is idolatry. The Israelites aren't misusing the Sabbath in any other way other than that they don't honor the Lord. They could take pleasure in things if they take pleasure in things in the Lord. They can enjoy food. They can enjoy, I don't know, do they exercise? Maybe, exercise. They can enjoy all sorts of different things if it's for the Lord. But they're not. They're having the Sabbath and they're worshipping different gods and they're chasing after uh, all sorts of debauchery, all sorts of sins in their life. So this passage here is not about don't do anything on the Sabbath, but rather who are you doing it for? Who are you doing it in the sake of? For the sake of? Is this for the sake of yourself and your own self-gratification? Or is it for the sake of the Lord? Because as we come to Christ, we see that Christ restates the Sabbath as it's something for us, to benefit us, to serve us, to grow us, to draw us to God. And that's going to look different for all, all of us. So when we look at this passage, or we quote this passage to one another, Will we quote it in a way that has New Testament lens across it? And as we come to Christ, we see these beautiful pictures of Christ and the way he fulfilled his ministry all on the Sabbath. This blew my mind as I started to study, study it. Jesus starts his ministry on the Sabbath. He starts his public ministry on the Sabbath. Luke 4 is the gospel we'll turn to. Luke 4, 16 to 19. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. On the Sabbath, Jesus walks into where all the Jews are, all the ones who would know and are waiting for this coming rest. They were waiting for the promised land. They sinned and turned away. The prophets come and tell them there is a better rest coming. His name is Jesus. They don't say that. He's the Messiah. And Jesus says, I am he. On the Sabbath, stands up in front of them on the day of rest when they are there reflecting on God, should be reflecting on God, but really misusing it for their own pleasure. He is saying, I am coming. I am the one filled with the Spirit. I am bringing the Lord's favor. I am bringing the ultimate rest. I am bringing the ultimate year of Jubilee where the captives will be set free. Of course, he's speaking of sin and the captives being set free. You can just imagine the Jews sitting there in shock and of course there was so much pride in the Jews thinking about this ultimate rest waiting for the day of rest and now hearing this is the day of the Lord's favor this man from Nazareth this man who has no formal training 
claiming that he is going to bring the ultimate rest, the ultimate freedom. It's the incredible beauty of this picture that Jesus starts his ministry on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, to introduce an everlasting rest. And then he dies the day before the Sabbath, resting in the grave on the Sabbath, demonstrating that he has claimed the rest for his people and raises to life on the first day of the week, bringing in order a new creation. And Jesus establishes a rest that will last forever and ever. See how important the dates are of when he is? On the Sabbath, he starts his ministry. On the day of rest, he says, I'm bringing about a new rest. I'm bringing about the year of the Lord's favor. He rests in the grave on the Sabbath to say there is a new day, the Lord's day on Sunday when he raises to life and defeats death. See, at the moment, we are still in the wilderness because now the message has changed from Israel to the Christians. But there's similarities. Just as the Israelites wandered throughout the wilderness, so Christians are wandering in a land that is foreign. A world that isn't yet complete. We haven't had our final seventh day where there will be completion and fullness and experience a rest that is forever. But just as God was gracious to Israel and said to them, rest. From the beginning, God rested. Now you rest and foretaste of the promised land or rest and foretaste of the coming Messiah. Now we can rest in Christ in a new greater freedom that gives us this taste of heaven, a joy that is going to be everlasting. Listen to what Christ says. It's a well-known verse. He sees the crowd of Jerusalem and he says, They are like sheep without a shepherd. And later he then comes down and says, Come to me, all who are labored and heavy, all who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus brings a rest that is not like the rest for the Israelites. The rest that we have is a total rest in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about our performance anymore, it's about his performance. And his performance was perfect. So the reason we can rest today greater than the Israelites rested in the wilderness or in the uh, promised land when they disobeyed is because today, those who are in Christ Jesus are righteous. Today, those who are in Christ Jesus are children of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus today are justified. The reason we can rest with a greater freedom than anyone has ever rested before is because Christ has done it for us. He's claimed it for us. We are in the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is that we are in Christ. We are in his righteousness and his performance. And Jesus is the only place we can find that rest. We can seek pleasures and comforts which lead to some sort of a rest, but they will always come up short because they are not the ultimate thing. Netflix, movies, TV, they will come up short because they are not the ultimate thing. Now, I'm not saying don't do them. I'll clarify that in a moment. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. That's for the whole world, the whole of creation. 
The creative mandate from God in Genesis 2 was work and rest in him. And with sin, that absolutely blew into an absolute mess. And we are all wandering about our life, looking for somewhere to rest our heads. And the only place we'll find it is in Jesus, because the only one that can save us from our major problem, which is sin, is him. That's what everyone's running from. The sin that is within them, trying to find rest from it, but they cannot. So Jesus gives us new commands or restates how they should be in him, what the Sabbath should look like. So Mark 2.27, a phrase that says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a very simple phrase to say that God created the Sabbath for you. The Sabbath does not rule over you. You rule over your Sabbath. And Paul clarifies it in Romans 14 when he goes through about conviction. And he's speaking about how we shouldn't judge one another on things that are with discerning in our heart. And he says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So what Paul is doing in clarifying this statement that Sabbath was made for man is that he is saying it's a conscience issue. But the important thing is, are you convinced in your mind? See, a lot of people don't give Sabbath a second thought. Some people will say that the only commandment we don't have to follow out of the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath day. I don't agree. I think the Bible is very clear that the rest is what we're aiming for. The Sabbath rest is what we're hanging for, but the everlasting rest is what we're looking forward to most. So we practice the everlasting rest by taking time out to trust in God rather than ourselves. But as to what day we have that on, that's your conscience to determine. You can choose to have it today, a Sunday, where you get fed by the Word and we worship together. It's a great day. It's the Lord's Day. It's a beautiful day for a Sabbath. I would encourage that. But if you are fully convinced of another day, if you're fully convinced of another day that you can honor the Lord on that day, then go for it and use that as a time to be re-energized, to, re, uh, to trust in God with your life's issues, your life's work. The important phrase in these two is that you are fully convinced in your mind and that you do it in honor of the Lord. I think for most Christians, they haven't even thought about it. The encouragement and the grace of God, this is not legalism. This is not a pressure to do something different in your life. This is God's grace to you, God's kindness to you, saying you can rest. You can rest because Jesus has claimed your rest for you. You can rest because you need to rest. You can rest because you need to trust in someone greater. You can rest because you're not in control of your work. You're not in control of your sanctification. You're not in control of your salvation. You're not in control of your end destination. That's all on God, and that's why you need to rest. But be convinced in your mind how you will use it. And let it honor the Lord. So back to Isaiah 58, what doesn't honor the Lord? Idolatry. When things become the ultimate things. When Netflix becomes the default, 
When food becomes the default, turns into gluttony. When alcohol becomes the default, I can't relax without it. I can't switch off until I've watched six episodes of my favorite TV show. I can't switch off until I've downed a couple of drinks. It's when these things become the ultimate. God has to be the reason we rest. It has to be in to observe the honor of the Lord. So two things that we need to be thinking as we wait for the ultimate rest is we need to be convinced in our own mind how we use it. We need to be thought through. Do I even rest? Have I even considered why I rest? Have I considered that this is actually a kindness of God to me? Have I considered a plan for my day of rest? Sometimes it's helpful to have a practical example. I'll give you my day of rest. It's Saturday. Grace has limited energy, so she stays in bed later than me. I'll get up early and I'll go somewhere into creation. And I want to just sit there and pray and read. And I have a reading plan that I follow every day, and that's my discipline to make sure I'm reading those, sitting in them, meditating. And I'll do that for just a period of time, no set time, until I just feel like I've gospeled my mind away from the flesh. And then our day turns into something fairly normal. We still eat. We watch a movie maybe. We try and make sure it's not too godless, not something that's going to lead our flesh back to, to, uh, to sin. We watch some sport. But that's my conscience. That's where I've come to. I've wrestled with it. I've prayed through it. That's where we are at. Maybe yours is different. And I fully respect those who say, I don't play sport on the Sabbath. I fully respect those who say I refuse to go and watch a movie on the Sabbath because it's godless. I respect that 100%. As long as there has been conviction in your mind and it's there to honor the Lord, it's for your good. Rest is for our good and we should consider it, wrestle with it, because it is part of the creation mandate way back in Genesis 2 as, as where we started. I want to draw our attention to one of the busiest missionaries. If you've read his story, Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China. Busy, busy man, full on role in his day. Yeah, go and fill yourself in on his story. The song that we sung earlier, Jesus, I'm resting, I'm resting, was his favorite hymn. And this is what someone wrote about him. Day and night, this was his secret, just to roll the burden on the Lord frequently those who were waking in the little house might hear at two or three in the morning the soft refrain of Mr. Taylor's favorite hymn, Jesus, I'm resting, resting. He had learned that for him the only, only one life was possible, just that blessed life of resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances while he dealt with the difficulties inward and outward, great and small. This was a man who sounds like he came to a place where he could rest while doing. He just rolled all the burdens onto the Lord, just, just gave them over to Jesus. And it got me thinking yesterday as I was reading this quote and I hadn't finished my sermon, so my Sabbath was writing my sermon, which was not entirely restful, but I was reading about Hudson Taylor and I'm like, maybe this can be. 
It's the word of God. It's life-giving. Maybe it can be. And every paragraph I just put on that song and, and just listen to it again. And I'm like, yes, I'm resting. This is not my work. This is not my burden to bear. These, you, you people aren't mine to fix. I can't. Jesus is fixing you. I can't fix myself. Jesus is sanctifying me. And just over and over saying, Jesus, I'm resting. I'm resting. Because Jesus did good on Sabbaths. He hung out with people. He evangelized. He healed the sick. He learned, of course, because Jesus was perfect. He didn't need to learn. He knew how to rest in doing. So would our rest be deliberate? Would our rest be convinced in our mind? Would we uphold the creation mandate and image God by resting, which points us to the everlasting rest of the saint? The everlasting rest of the saint. Just think for a moment what heaven's going to be like or the new creation. What are we going to be doing? If Sabbath is there to point us to an everlasting rest, what's going to be our time? We won't be parents running after kids. There won't be movies, nor will there be marriage. You'll be worshipping. You'll be worshipping Jesus. But let me not paint a picture that is there of this choir that just stands before Jesus for all eternity. It's a world like this, with beauty. It's this world renewed. The heavens and the earth are made new. He makes them new. No curse upon them. Crystal clear waters, no damage to the mountains, no damage to the air. There will be work to do in heaven. Have you thought about that? Working. Working with one another in a way where everything prospers. And through our work, there'll be worship to the Lord. I can't imagine what it's like to work in that sort of enjoyment. But let us remember that our everlasting rest will be absolute perfection in worship, worshipping of Jesus Christ. Maybe that will help govern how you use your Sabbath. Let me pray. Father, words are merely not enough to say how gracious you are. You not only created a world that had a mandate of rest in it, it is a major part of our life's existence. It's the pursuit that we all long for, a rest from our weary bodies and the plaguing of sin and doubts. The, and Lord, we just know that in Christ, through your mighty grace, you have given us the ultimate rest. Even today, Lord, we can, we can just taste a little bit more of that rest as we allow all those things that we have to, to roll off onto you. I love that. Lord, as we think about our own sanctification, would we just let it roll to you? You just take it, Father. You have it anyway. It's yours. As we think about our family and the need of discipling our children or providing for them, Lord, would we just now say, Lord, we trust you. 
We trust you with it. We know you have it. You are the God who provides our every need. Lord, as we think of our future and you call us not to worry, would we rest now in, in you, Lord, knowing that knowing that you have our future secure? So secure, Lord. What a blessing, Father, it is to have the seventh day, or in our case, the Lord's day, the year of the Lord's favour. What a blessing it is to know, Lord, that you are in constant rest. That even now, while you spin this world and coordinate things, for you it is restful. And Lord, I pray that every time we take ease of this world, every time we step back from it, that we would have a picture of the everlasting rest, a community of working for your glory in a perfect, uncursed earth with you being the sun and the light. We long for it. We say, Lord, as you taught us, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.